today on the Transformative Podcast, we are joined by Dr. Leslie Waters, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of Texas, El Paso. She is the author of a monograph, Borders on the Move, Territorial Change and Ethnic Cleansing in the Hungarian-Slovak Borderlands 1938-1948. And her new project, about which we'll be talking today, is titled Barcelona 92, The New Europe at the Olympic Games. So, you have said um, in some of your first talks about this new project that Barcelona 92, the Olympic Games there, uh, symbolically redefined the European continent. So, how exactly did they do that and what sorts of different ideas were brought together at the games well it's a really interesting moment in time because the maastricht treaty was signed just a couple of months before the olympics began and so you have the declaration of this new entity going to form in the very near future the european union but you also have the post-socialist states many of whom are declaring independence from their sort of federal entities and are looking to make a statement about state sovereignty and their own sovereignty at those Olympic Games. Then you have the hosts, uh, the Catalans in the city of Barcelona, uh, who would like to emphasize a Europe of regions and perhaps even follow the model of places like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and use sport to increase their sort of global presence and potentially gain autonomy or even independence based on uh, their sporting prowess. So very often the narrative about big sporting events like this is that they create friendships and they bring people together. Do you find that all these different ideas of Europe, what it could be and what it is, are harmonized or kind of brought together at these games? Or are there even frictions and tensions between these different ideas? I would say there's both. So there's definitely a concerted effort on the part of the organizers to, at the opening ceremony, make a kind of multi-level argument about Europe. And so there's like this presentation of the Mediterranean, there's this presentation of Catalan folk culture, and there's also, for the first time, the entrance of the EEC flag at the Games. And there was even talk of having the European Economic Community members proceed together at the opening ceremonies, but uh, that was axed by the National Olympic Committees who who would prefer to emphasize their statehood at that uh, moment in time. But then you also have these moments of friendship. So the Catalans were not going to be allowed to have their own team at the Olympic Games. They were not allowed to proceed officially at the opening ceremonies, but the Lithuanians, I believe, asked them if they would sort of walk with them uh, in the opening ceremonies. So this real, really close relationship, in fact, between the Baltic states and the Catalan organizers formed as a result of these Olympic Games, which is not something I had ever known about before, but definitely it seems like sort of regional nationalists in Spain looked to Eastern Europe as a model for what they might do in the future whose opinions about what Europe is and what it should be came to really matter most perhaps at that Games because presumably there were different perspectives, you know, on the part of the International Olympic Committee, uh, participating states, athletes themselves, sponsors, etc. And then in your own historical research, what are the perspectives that you find personally most interesting and that you have most sympathy for? The media's perspective is the one that's easiest to 
find and make sense out of. But of course, like there are multiple media perspectives. So it depends on are you looking at the United States media? Are you looking at German media? Are you looking at I look at Hungarian media? Like what are they saying about the games? And and it's quite different in all cases. I'll say for the United States, I've watched several times now the opening ceremony as it was broadcast on NBC. It's like, look at all of these countries and places you've never heard of before, <laughs> basically. It's like a coming out party. It is introducing much of Eastern Europe to an American audience for the first time. Uh, internally, the files of the International Olympic Committee do seem to suggest that this is negotiation and they don't necessarily know how to proceed in all circumstances. So in some cases, they're very deferential, for example, to the Soviet Olympic Committee. In other cases, they are not so deferential, for example, to the Serbian Olympic Committee or the Yugoslav Olympic Committee at that moment in time. Um, but actually, their biggest challenge and something that I'm working on currently is the sanctions that the United Nations put on to Yugoslavia, which included international sporting events in 1992 because of their uh, role in the war in Bosnia. Uh, so trying to negotiate getting the Yugoslav athletes to the Olympics becomes kind of a Herculean effort on the part of the IOC. And they do manage under the, the sort of a neutral flag to bring the Yugoslav athletes to the games. But seeing that negotiation process has been very interesting to me because in part it's about the IOC trying to like reestablish their autonomy. They're very concerned, right, that the United Nations has taken it upon themselves to intervene in sport, which is their purview. And they try to find a way to sort of elevate the Olympics over all other international sporting events. And this is actually, in some ways, the genesis of the Olympic truce is meant to circumnavigate UN sanctions against countries and to try and make the case that the Olympics is special, the Olympics are different, and therefore they shouldn't be beholden to these international rules that are meant to kind of chastise countries for their geopolitical behavior. In the title, in the working title of your project, it's uh, The New Europe at the Olympics. And certainly, as you mentioned, a new Europe is being showcased in events like the opening ceremony. But the old Europe and specifically like post-socialist legacies are surely equally a sort of formative of aspects of this sporting event. So can you talk a little bit about the things that aren't new and about, because I know your specialization in Hungary and Central Eastern Europe, the post-socialist legacies that continue to shape and inflect these games? Right. So this is one of the reasons I I particularly like this project and this framing for looking at post-1989 Europe is because sport is one of the places in which there is not a huge desire to get rid of the socialist legacy, right? They have been so successful in the realm of international sporting competition. And so there's actually anxiety. How will we maintain our relative success into the future what, now that we do not have state support? So I would say that unlike so many issues that are coming up in these years, sport is something that uh, it's a legacy that they're relatively proud of and that they're anxious about sort of maintaining into the future. And they're looking for new strategies for how to finance their sport. They're looking for new strategies for retaining athletes. There's an incredible amount of fear that um, the elite athletes from Central and Eastern Europe are just going to migrate to the West and compete for Western countries that can offer them uh, better conditions. 
So this is really about maintaining the socialist legacy rather than getting rid of it completely. You have argued, nevertheless, that sporting events have been used to anchor countries both within liberal international orders and capitalist economic systems. Can you talk specifically about how this Olympic Games did both of those things? So from the economic perspective, there's a benevolent, and I'm using air quotes when I say uh, benevolent, effort on the part of the United States Olympic Committee to come to Central and Eastern European countries and teach them how to do marketing and how to do marketing in such a way that will satisfy in particular like this um, very strange relationship of Olympic sponsors. There is this level of called top sponsors and they have marketing rights worldwide. So for example, at the time Kodak was a worldwide sponsor of the Olympic Games. If you were a Hungarian film company, Fortapan, for example, you could not be a sponsor of the Hungarian Olympic Committee, right? So because there is a worldwide sponsor. So it becomes quite obvious very soon that they're not going to be able to finance themselves through marketing schemes the way that the USOC can, because there aren't really homegrown companies at that moment in time that can sponsor them. And because of the top sponsor framework, the very few companies that would be potentially able to sponsor an Olympic team are usually disqualified. So it's not so much a success story, I would say. I do know that the United States opened up some souvenir shops in Croatia and Poland, but I have a feeling that most of that revenue probably flowed back into uh, U.S businesses' uh, hands rather than uh, the Olympic committees that were involved in the bilateral negotiations. So there's that part of it. There's learning how to privately sponsor Olympic teams. I would say that's part of integrating into kind of a marketized liberal system. Politically, it's much more mixed of a record here. It depends on what country we're talking about. So there are some places, let's say that it, embraced lustration more seriously, like Czechoslovakia and Poland, that did basically completely change the makeup of their Olympic committees. So Vera Czeslavska became the president of the Czechoslovak Olympic Committee after, of course, being ostracized from the Olympic community in Czechoslovakia for many years after taking part in some form in the protests in 1968. But then you have places like Hungary and Bulgaria that do not really embrace lustration to the same degree. And there's an incredible amount of continuity in terms of who is in charge of the Olympic teams. And I find it quite interesting because, as we know, at this moment in time, it's very important if you have connections to some other part of the world, right? Global connections are what are going to make the new elite in Eastern Europe to a certain degree. And if you're part of these Olympic committees, you already have those global connections quite explicitly. So I don't think it's a surprise that this prominent Hungarian fencer who was the president of the Hungarian Olympic Committee at moments in time, he was a vice president of the International Olympic Committee at various moments in time, becomes president of Hungary uh, in the 2000s. So you can definitely see that there's a they're in a very advantageous position, these people who have been involved in global sporting mechanisms. So those who are able to continue on into the 1980s and 2000s, they 
they become the new elite of these countries and they refashion themselves quite effectively to continue their sort of elevated positions in society. I wanted to ask you about how what you're studying in the 90s relates or does not relate to kind of sports washing that we see today. So these are claims, as far as I understand it, that very illiberal regimes use major sporting events actually to kind of pay lip service and only lip service to certain liberal forms of internationalism. So Winter Olympics that have been held in Russia would be a case of this. And then essentially FIFA World Cups of the past couple of years have drawn the most criticism in this regard. Uh, and the Live Golf mm-hmm. sponsorship by Saudi Arabia. So I wondered, has something fundamentally changed since the 90s? Did sport work as a form of liberalising tool in the 90s? And has it been utterly hollowed out? Or actually, do you find big continuities between what you're seeing then and the sorts of ways that international sporting events are deployed today? Yeah, I think you have to really sort of parse out the political from the economic in these situations. And so while it might the Olympics might promote a kind of liberalizing moment in terms of things like marketing and yeah, free marketization. It never really seems to have an effect in terms of like democratization. And I think that's true for everywhere, not just the like so-called authoritarian countries that have hosted Olympic Games. But if you look at the securitization that goes along with Olympics, even in places like Los Angeles, sort of current issue as they're trying to negotiate and navigate how that city is going to hold the games in 2028. I assume something similar is going on in Paris. There's always sort of an authoritarianism that comes with hosting the Olympic Games, right? There's always an increase in security. There's always an increase in things like eminent domaining property to build Olympic villages and displacing people and, I don't know, sweeping up uh, homeless encampments off of the street to make the city seem more pristine or something like that. So I I actually see a lot of continuity, and I think sport washing happens in every single instance, whether it's Russia, whether it's the United States, whether it's France. And and therefore, I, I think what's going on in the 1990s is very similar to what's happening today. I will say that the way that Barcelona is talked about in the kind of historiography and the Olympic legacy is is this sort of pinnacle moment of of success for the Olympic movement and the transformation of this city and it becomes this tourist destination once again they they take out the port and they put in a beach and it becomes this place that everybody wants to go to and the Olympics really starts the cosmopolitanization of of Barcelona that we come in to understand today. But I think that if it, I think that that legacy needs a re-examination as well. We have to ask the question of, of what sort of sport washing was Spain engaging in in 1992 as well. Brilliant. Okay, Leslie Waters, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine. 